Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. So I don't know what your thoughts are on this whole like uh, ESPN deal, but the idea that ESPN is way less problematic than Barstool Sports to me doesn't actually pass the smell test, especially given all the crazy stuff that they've publicized or featured on their network over the past several years that have led to so many people getting fired. It seems to me like if you actually lined it up next to each other, that ESPN has probably fired more people for saying crazier or more offensive things than Barstool has over the last, I don't know, five years or so. What happened? I, I'm just seeing now that Portnoy bought it back. Well, so here's what happened. Um, the The situation is that Barstool got into this deal with Penn uh, which has you know about forty casinos and uh, and sports books across the country uh, to rebrand all of their sports books after Barstool, Barstool, uh, you know, sports books, and then also their gambling app. And the idea from the Penn perspective was, you know, Caesars and MGM and uh, you know all these other places are going to be doing uh, you know whether it's it's you know. Uh, uh, the the Vegas based ones or the existing online ones, they're all going to be producing massive amounts of ads in order to try to get you to go on there. You know, the Jamie Foxx ads, uh, the, the Caesars ads, the, you know, all these other ones to try to get you to get onto their app, um, including by the way, Fox sports, uh, but, uh, but others as well. ESPN uh, even tried to do this themselves the, with the ESPN bat app. Uh, and Penn's uh, de- decision was basically we are going to instead just buy an existing sports media company and use them as the vehicle to advertise us to gamblers because that will ultimately be essentially the same as what we would pay to add people and it'll be way cooler and more hip uh, and less like just churning through ads on TV. Uh, the problem was that once they added Barstool as kind of their branding, then they also added all of the different baggage that comes with Barstool, namely that, you know, whenever anybody says something inappropriate on a podcast, that turns up into into a regulatory issue uh, when you're going in front of the gambling commission in a state or something like that. And this became a huge problem for them and a huge challenge for them. So ultimately what they've essentially done is ESPN has come in and said, we want to do the same deal and we're way more legitimate. We're way more corporate. Uh, we're m- way more friendly. Uh, and the upshot of it is that uh, Barstool sort of has this non-compete now that, uh, that you know, the nature of which I don't, we don't know all the details, but Portnoy saying sort of, I've bought it back is really them kind of trading him 
uh, you know, stock, he essentially is buying it back for like zero dollars uh, in exchange for a non-compete for what they do going forward. Um, at least that's my understanding of the deal, which means that they can't start their own sports book. You know, they can't, uh, you know, essentially do the same kind of deal with a similar gambling company and the like. But, you know, for ESPN, this is a huge move. We're going to have ESPN branded sports books all across the country. You know, things like the things along those lines that, you know, are we've never seen before. And for, uh, you know, a the amount of sports gambling that is going on in the country currently, it's a pretty big bet uh, on the part of Disney and ESPN that they're going to make this work. My question is, you know, the next time that Stephen A. Smith says something nuts, is that going to end up in front of, uh, you know, a regulatory thing? Are they going to have to silence the, you know, the the remaining media <laughs> folks they have that ever say anything interesting? I think, first of all, can I just say that if if the line of business that you're in has a has a, a, a companion a companion organization called blank anonymous okay then you're the problematic one right so if you're in the narcotics industry there's narcotics anonymous right if you're in the booze industry there's alcoholics anonymous if you're in the sports betting industry there's gamblers anonymous right you're the you're the problem so i find it hilarious that you know sam rothenstein from casino is worried about who he's in bed with is someone going to say something that's <laughs> problematic or politically no, it's, it's actually, it's like, you know, that's a perfect comparison it, you know it, it it really is it's like you look at the movie casino and it's like uh, uh, i'm sorry we can't have anybody from barstool ever use the n-word on a podcast because that would mean the end of gambling's you know uh premier status in the american mindset and and here's the thing yeah you're one of the you're you're one of the legs of the three-legged stool of the american mafia right so it's like it's like you know drugs prostitutes gambling right and you're one of the three legs of the of the five families of new york and you're worried about what some bro from a state school said on a podcast it's just it's just <laughs> well but it's not even that funny. by the way by the way this is the thing what they ran into and i think this is what they didn't think about the senior people at Barstool are very mindful of this. Like if you pay any attention to them, they're very self, they're they're self-aware, they're much more careful. They understand how to kind of like bridge that gap. And I say this about like all the guys who are in their 30s, you know, who've been around for a long time. The problem is that, that for like the junior they they as part of their approach to things feature all these super junior people who say crazy stuff all the time. And it's not even, I mean, I'm using a, a real life example in the sense that they had to fire an employee who was literally reading rap lyrics on a podcast. Uh, and uh, and by the way, as soon as Portnoy announced his, you know, emergency press conference that he was, you know, he was back, the next one was him calling that employee and saying, you're coming back. Okay, but, but it's one of these things that is so, enter it's so interesting to me because, to your point, it's like, I'm sorry, you know, this is, this is, you know, what, you, what are you really trying to maintain here? That gambling is something that, you know, has to be completely above board in every other respect 
of of what it does you know the yeah you, you're the you're, you're the reason they invented brass knuckles right and you're, <laughs> and you're worried and you're worried about and you're worried about that I, it's so funny to me i don't have a i don't have a firmer opinion other than just to say it's the same thing with weed right we're we're all right of center guys here of different flavors same thing with weed just because you you say you don't want people going to jail for weed or and you don't want the federal you know regulatory apparatus controlling marijuana you, that doesn't mean that you that you think it's good that there is a billboard every half mile on I-95 for a cannabis company. The same thing with sports gambling. Look, I think the cases that that opened the door to this or were rightly decided or whatever. But and I, you know, I, I bet on sports. I like mm. p- playing poker with my buddies. I get it. But that's that's not the same thing as saying that, you know, the day after tomorrow, every you know, the Disney corporation should be opening sports books, which is what's happening. Yes. Right. So you've got the Disney corporation opening sports, sports books across the country. I mean, that's, that's my view on it. I mean, I think on the, like, who's more problematic. I mean, what's the first, uh, I, I think what's the, the yeah. first sports book that's going to play on the, on the nostalgia of uh, adult Disney fans, which we all know is like the creepiest thing in the world. These 45 year olds, who like it's go a to small bet after all <laughs> yeah it's a small <laughs> bet after all i mean you get you could go you could go you go all, all, all there's got to be some play on parlay and some disney property i mean there's there's a lot I, of i'm things just thinking i'm just i we gotta gotta be honest uh it, it's gonna be a disney princess themed sports book that's what it's gonna be and they're gonna and they're gonna say that it's about female empowerment but it really is not <laughs> I'm just waiting for the Disney cruise where they're going to have uh, slot machines on it. And oh. instead of just being the traditional handle, it's going to have that like Mickey Mouse gloved hand at the end of the lever. And you're going to just, you know, you're going to let the tots slots for tots uh, you know, brought to you by, by Disney. It should be the, and, snow, and it should it be, be the sleeping hey, beauty. Which... <laughs> hey, and let's take it to another point. Now that you've got the whole ESPN thing with the mascots, how long, how long before, uh, you know, part of the deal with uh, with the consolidation going on with conferences that, you know, maybe the you know Michigan Wolverine needs to you know deal a couple hands of uh, you know five card stud. I don't know. <laughs> the big the the uh, the big themed um, uh, uh, Disney cruise, uh, you know, all mascots, you know, uh, uh, you know, cheerleaders, you know, and uh, and you can just you know bet on bet on sports during any kind of tournament. Imagine the March Madness uh you know cruise tour that you could have themed around that it would be insane well i know we i know we have to talk about the election at a certain point but in all in all seriousness how is so espn it's it's an order of magnitude it's it's a difference of kind not just of degree right because you've got an organization you've got an organization that has a reporter in every professional locker room in every sport and they're going to be setting lines on games I mean, the, you know what I mean? How, this how is, is the that thing. kosher? It's, it's going to be a situation where it's like hand in glove, you know, uh, ESPN both promoting, reporting about, uh, and then having branded sports books, you know, at all of these casinos and even potentially branded casinos, by the way, at the same time. So how you run into, how you avoid kind of uh, having problems related to that. I mean, especially in situations where imagine if it's a situation, for instance, where Woj is reporting about where a player could go or where a player could not go. And at the same time that there are lines that you could put on in a sports book, you know, that about where that player could go, you know, and 
that that to me is just like going to be how they navigate that. I mean, good luck. You know, it just I mean, it's it's it, the, yeah, it's ridiculous. It's 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 a it's a classic case of everybody forgetting William F. Buckley's classic line that just because something's legal doesn't mean it's reputable. You know what I mean? We have to just, we have to set. I, I, I'm just waiting for David Zaslav to, to make a similar to come to a similar conclusion as Bob Iger and say, okay, we need a running gambling ticker on CNN on both convictions, uh, you know, dates, the, uh, the nature of those convictions, you know, every single election that we're calling or predicting, you know, and say, that's going to be what saves CNN. <laughs> it's just to go the same route. Um, maybe, yeah, I, I don't maybe. know if you saw this, but a, a couple of, uh, about a week and a half ago, Peter struck, the famous, uh, you know, uh, philanderer and and uh, FBI agent uh, was on Twitter, uh, and he tweeted out a screen cap, clearly from a site he was looking at, uh, about the indictments uh, that he expected to come down, and he recommended saying, and he said, you know, you well, you could, you know, obviously this is probably what's going to happen, but you could make even more money if you add this to your parlay. And not only did what he predict not happen, the parlay totally failed because it, what he was predicting was that Jack Smith would indict not just Donald Trump, but like four other people as well. And that made me very happy also because in his parlay, the odds he was getting were well, well off what I found on another site that I use for similar points, meaning that he was getting a bad deal. And then he lost assuming that he actually, you know, put his money where his mouth is. So, you know, look, I'm, I'm just saying CNN should probably consider it. it. It might be, it might be a good way to turn things around and, and certainly live betting during debates would be very, very fun. Uh, but I think going back to Dan's point, I think that maybe our kids someday will see a movie that instead of a uh, blue blue horseshoe suggesting Anacott Steel, you're going to have uh, Adam Schefter suggesting the under on Tony Pollard's uh, yards rushing this week. <laughs> I, I think that that is an inevitability, John. This is Thunderdome, and so we all uh, have to talk about something other than the sports media gambling business uh, that we uh, that we so love uh, and. A lot of things have happened, uh, gentlemen, uh, since the last time that we spoke. You know, including, you know, some some breaking news about the the uh, twenty million dollars that the House Oversight Committee has found flowing to the Biden family over the course of uh, his vice presidency, uh, leading to yet another move of the goalposts by the White House uh, of saying there was no direct payment uh, or check written to Joe Biden which is the, the the next sort of iteration away from not being in business with his son uh, and before that never speaking to his son about business. Uh, so there, there's, you know, some crazy stuff happening there. But let's focus uh, for the moment uh, on kind of the Republican situation. Uh, there were a couple of really interesting pieces that came out over the past week that I wanted to ask you both uh, about. One in particular uh, was written by a friend of the uh, pod, or at least a source for the pod, uh, Ryan Gerdeski. Uh, I, uh, you know, uh, certainly talk to Ryan and and uh, and rely on him for insights into a lot of different things. Over at the American Conservative, he kind of ran through the the idea that the normie voter would be a, a major factor in the upcoming election, but that the definition of the normie voter was. Uh, not accurate when it came to the way that most people on the national level think of them. Uh, John, because you're the one who always seems to stress kind of 
the return of the normie voter or the appeal of the normie voter in the Republican primary context. Uh, what do you think about his analysis uh, and and what do you think that it means in terms of the field? I think his analysis is is largely correct, but you end up coming back to we'll call it the Jeb Bush problem from 2016 that you have to, you know, I think in his words, something the effect of lose the primary to win the general election. Uh, I think if you add with that, the, uh, the Tom Massey, Congressman Tom Massey corollary that Republican primary voters seem to generally want the craziest son of a bitch in the field. Um, you know, it creates, it creates problems then to sort of speak to some of the concerns um, that the, the Ryan raised in the piece. Uh, that said, I do think to some extent, if you look back at 2016, some of the a, a lot of the success I think that Donald Trump enjoyed was that he ended up being kind of the avatar for the voter that Ryan describes. Where so one of the things he puts out there, and I, I don't think it's said nearly often enough in political discourse, um, is moderate voters are not you know right wing plus left wing views divided by two and averaged out. They're a, a hodgepodge of, of stuff. I remember when I was a, an intern a long, long time ago on Capitol Hill, uh, you know, the House would hold uh, lectures by you know, members of Congress that were willing to speak. And I remember I went to one uh, that was given by Barney Frank. And look, I didn't agree with his politics, but thought he was a really smart guy. And you know, this is 20 plus years ago, and it still sticks with me. Uh, he, was, he was bemoaning this, and, and to a degree, I would probably sympathetic to his perspective of he, he thinks that there's a conservative or Republican ideologies and progressive or Democratic ideologies, and this is all roughly paraphrasing, that kind of hang together, and that you know, politics shouldn't be the sort of Chinese food buffet, except for most Americans, it kind of is. Of the, the I think that the the, the Washington set or the commentary. Oh, or oh the, uh, sorry, they're they're putting the orange chicken back in. Got to go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, that. You know, you have folks that that say, "Hey, fifteen dollar minimum wage sounds great, but build the wall," um, or you know, p pick whatever you want. But the the folks are kind of it's a, it's really a grab bag of things on the left and the right. And I think Trump was able to get at that. I, I can't remember who if it, it may have been Gallup. It was one of the big pollsters uh, had. I think it was a it was on a five or seven point scale in twenty sixteen after the fact. You know, who do you think was closer? You know, where are you? Where's the middle? Where was Donald Trump? Where was Hillary Clinton? Donald Trump was seen as being fairly close to the ideological middle. And I think that was a lot of his his strength. Uh, the, the fact that he sort of took you know, the traditional entitlement hits on Republicans, Paul Ryan pushing granny off the cliff. Trump kind of took those things off the table. Uh, and in 2016, he had not yet put on all the other things that he then put on the table as his own problems in, in 2020. I think that Glenn Youngkin's win in Virginia uh, in, in 21 uh, was really a kind of a triumph of a different flavor of the normie voter. It's, it was probably more of the suburban college educated normie voter that's, hey, you know, I'm fine with, you know, more access to abortion, but weird shit's happening in my kid's school. And I don't really like that. Uh, so I think it's it's the, the point here, or I think one of the points, the one I think is most important is that there's going to be a kind of a mix. You don't need to have sort of ideological purity. And I think if you look at, at Republican candidates over the last few cycles who have kind of have done that, I mean, Ted Cruz in 16 being an example, there's, there's less of a market there, less of a market for just, you know, true con, uh, for lack of a better term, 
then you would think that there's more of this, this hodgepodge. And I think trying to figure out what that block of voters is into this time. Um, and, and I know something we're talking about in a minute, you know, in some Manhattan Institute polling sort of begins to get at that a little bit, or at least for Republican primary voters. But, you know, it's all these candidates need to start shifting and talking about to some degree, what the normie voter wants to talk about. And the normie voter can be, you know, super MAGA, or he can, you know, he or she can be, you know, even a Biden voter, but there's going to be, there is still unbelievably in America in, in 2023, there is some stuff that that crosses over and crosses lines if you don't put an R or D next to it. Yeah. I thought that, I thought the interesting thing in the, in the Jodersky piece was that it, it was that um, word cloud he put in about what, voters are thinking about in 24 and if you look at it it's sort of bad news i think maybe i think about too much in this frame but it's sort of bad news for desantis right or or yunkin right for that matter is that that you know the word covid doesn't appear anywhere on that word cloud or or shutdowns or any anything around the politics it's kind of amazing how vaporous that set of political issues has turned out to be um, in, in such a short time. And, and the, the, the sort of half-life of news cycles obviously has been um, shortening, uh, you know, rapidly um, to put it in a confusing way uh, over the last few years. And that's to me, a great indication of it. That word cloud is, you know, the economy, inflation, immigration. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's all of those things, comma, stupid. Um, and it's not really anything else, it doesn't seem like. And and so I think the only thing I would say, you know, kind of to John's point is it's certainly true. And we've talked in different sort of aspects of this before that that Trump in 2016 was not the most conservative guy in the GOP field and was not supported by the most conservative voters in the in the GOP primary. He was the moderate guy. I mean, you can kind of do, and the media loves to do this, you can kind of define it backwards and just say, if you supported Donald Trump, you're by definition ultra MAGA, ultra right, right wing, right? But that's just not the case by any objective rubric of what we understand conservative to mean. So it's, you know, Trump, Trump was more of the moderate Republican voter um, voters guy in that sense. And, and, and of course in key States like Wisconsin and, and Pennsylvania and Michigan, it was that sort of voter who flipped from Obama to Trump in 2016 that, that carried the day. So the, the only thing I'd add is that, you know, like, like John put it, that he, he took some stuff off the table. He put a lot of other stuff on the table and certainly what a lot of those voters voted for in 2016, they either went back to Biden or stayed home or, um, you know, they, they, they weren't on, on, on board then, you know, the next time out, that being said, the, there were some gains, gains made by Trump in interesting ways. And certainly in 2022, there were some gains made by Republicans and, and a Republican sort of field of candidates that looked much more like Donald Trump than, than a congressional field of candidates would have looked certainly 10 years before, but even four years before. Um, and there, you know, we, everyone talked about the gains in this Hispanic vote and, um, and and certainly the the flipping of college educated for not college educated white voters. And so I think that was the other interesting thing that I just sort of wasn't aware of or I wouldn't have been aware of it enough to put it in these words. But we talk about non non college educated whites. I remember Trump even said we love our <laughs> what did he say like five years ago? We love our low education voters, don't we, folks? But um, the 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 thing in the Jurisky piece, which was that. One in four Biden voters, we think of those guys as Trump voters, but one in four Biden voters 
that is to say a quarter of all the people who actually voted for Joe Biden are in that demo, right? Non-college educated whites. So there's still a big, so in, in all of these cases, we're talking about 60, 40 at the, at the outside. And in a lot of cases, we're talking about 55, 45, one way or the other, essentially coin flips and little deviations in, in, in where those voters go are going to determine who wins the next election. And it's really, it's, it's a bad time to be in our line of work, to be a prognosticator or a pundit, because I just don't, I just don't know. I mean, the voting, voting block is going to, the voters are going to get younger millennials, and Zoomers are going to be a majority of voters, if not this cycle, the next cycle. Um, older voters are dying off. I've, you know, that's that's sort of the nature of how time works. Uh, and and we're and it remains to be seen whether those gains in in non-white voters, you know, for the GOP are going to carry forward to 2024. So it's it's a really tough time to make predictions. And that's why it really is anyone's game. Well, well the, the thing that I think that is really important to take away before we move on from uh, Ryan's piece is that <clears throat> I feel like so many people are still operating, especially those who are very pro-Trump, under the idea that this electorate essentially has the same attitudes, priorities, and uh, and perspectives that they did in 2016. And just to sort of carry that point forward, you know, we also saw this week this uh, uh, polling done by the Manhattan Institute, which has been, I think, to their credit, uh, doing some issue based polling in ways that are that are really interesting, like way better than what I've been seeing in the past from folks who are just trying to push their issue set. Um, and also, I think, giving us a real perspective on in the early states, Iowa, New Hampshire and South Carolina the uh the sort of focus of uh, early voters and who their second choices are uh as a field potentially narrows i'm curious about both your takeaways from looking at that polling data but also you know i think that this kind of reveals this whole uh, that you know folks just are locked in on this idea that like ron DeSantis is ted cruz uh, Donald Trump, uh, you know, is the same Donald Trump, which he definitely isn't in terms of his framing. He has more support from conservatives. He's lost the moderates, uh, some of them completely to the point that they would never vote for him and would actually, you know, according to multiple polls, would vote for Joe Biden over him were he the nominee. And, you know, there's there's just a completely different dynamic going on, especially considering that we aren't even talking about the way that the Electoral College map has changed in the intervening years, uh, driven, uh, you know, not just by the normal geographic movement of people, but by COVID and everything else that came with that, uh, with people flowing into red states and away from these blue states, uh, making those blue states bluer and the red states redder uh, in ways that we certainly saw in the last midterm. Uh, what were your reactions to some of the things that you saw in that MI uh, presentation, which we'll obviously link to? I'll go first. I, I think, you know, the the things that we've been talking about for a long time that it reinforced are that Trump's support is is more solid and less fungible than the other candidates. We saw that 74, 75% of his voters in those early states are locked in on him. Now, 25% is a lot. And if they change their minds, you know, that's consequential. Um, and, but, it, but it's also a tall order for, for, for Ron DeSantis. It's also, you know, it's also tough if you're DeSantis, because again, you now have to keep making your case in terms of 
you know, bank shots and all, all the pieces falling into place in such a way that you squeak through the early states with maybe one one victory out of three or four. And you, you know, you count on other people dropping out in the field, consolidating in a certain way, yada, yada, yada. I mean, it's just when you have to make such a contingent case like that, it makes it tough with donors. It makes it tough with the press and it makes it tough to a general public that's thinking about their best bet, you know, a GOP voting public that's thinking about their best bet in the general, which I do think, you know, a fair amount of Republican voters still do think that way. Um, you know, so it makes it tough for him. It's also tough because, you know, part of what has to happen based on that great granular MI polling is, is that, you know, there's, there's a lot of people, including some people on this podcast, I think who are DeSantis or Scott or Scott, if not Scott, then DeSantis, or if not DeSantis, then Scott. And Tim Scott's going to be around for a while. Um, it's going to be around certainly through South Carolina and probably a lot longer after that. And that presents the exact same coordination problem and tragedy of the commons that led to Donald Trump, especially before it was a fait accompli, winning the GOP nomination in 2016 with a plurality and a fairly weak plurality of voters, you know, before it really became, you know, a formality when he was able to rack up a bunch of votes, obviously. Um, And that's kind of looks like, you know, where we're headed again. It actually makes me that polling actually makes me more convinced that the nominee is going to be Donald Trump than ever. I agree. And for for anyone who is not Trump at this point, they don't control their own destiny. It's hard to see anything happening. There's certainly things I can imagine that are pretty entertaining. And I just saw uh, you know, 10 or 15 minutes ago, um, Chris Christie uh, basically continuing to poke at tr- Apparently Trump said something very Trump-like uh, about Chris Christie and uh, how uh, but the Trump was, you know, did not pile on about, you know, uh, Governor Christie's size and that, you know, but many other people would. And he was a good guy for it, didn't. And, you know, Christie's response was basically say that to my face in the debate, you coward, um, which, again, is why I kind of enjoy Christie and all of this. But I just don't see anything that could happen uh, that that can be caused by those by the other candidates that create circumstances at this point where Trump is not the nominee. There could be you know, sort of things in the environment, whether it's you know, a Trump conviction or s- some other black swan that is unforeseeable at this point in time that, that could cause that. But any hope or belief that there's going to be this sort of like, you know, Deus ex machina later in this year. And, and I, think, I think it was either Liam Donovan or Luke Thompson that had, uh, tweeted something to this effect, but you know, if if you're ho- if you're searching for that kind of white knight in, in you know the end of 2023, it's already too late and you've lost. Uh, so, you know, it is it, it comes down to you know, again we we've said before if Trump wins Iowa, it's over. Um, I, I think even if he loses Iowa, you know, if he kind of does takes care of business in the next couple of weeks, uh, I, I guess the the sort of the interesting question. Well, that, you know, wait, wait, wait! Can I interject something there though? You know, this is the thing that sort of, again, the point was about this Manhattan Institute polling. You know, one of the things that was interesting to me about it was that, you know, if you looked at Iowa and South Carolina, um, you know, one of the things that they've certainly showed the the overwhelming majority of, of voters consider them conservatives on the issues of, uh, you know, one of the questions was on 
newer cultural issues like gender transitions for minors and critical race theory in schools and companies. Do you consider yourself somewhat conservative to the, you know, it goes through, uh, you know, very somewhat, you know, very somewhat on conservative and liberal 64% in Iowa and then 70% in South Carolina. You know, in what way has Donald Trump not been the absolute weakest candidate other than Asa Hutchinson on that issue? So in response to that, I think that that's a point well taken, uh, but it gets into another. Uh, I, think I mean, I would in- actually argue he's he's a leftist on those issues. It, you know, he he hasn't shown any kind of leadership on it. You know, going back to kind of the point of him being a moderate, I would say the one area where he is currently still a quote unquote moderate or centrist is that he is definitely to Tim Scott's left on both of those issues. I think that the the Trump guys would say that he had his anti-CRT executive order trying to push all that stuff out of the administration. But what I was going to say was that, and I, I don't think you're doing this, but I think a lot of people look at these kind of things and they confuse support with salience. And yes, it seems like that Republican voters, no, that's totally in, fair in, in those States, um, you know, have, there may have been more aggregate between very and somewhat conservative. And it actually, it was on the fiscal issues. The party is still more fiscally conservative uh, than I think some of us, including myself, and I think what, what that means to be fiscally or economic conservative, I think, is all in the eye of the beholder, uh, someone who's been around this stuff for a while. But I think people believe that stuff, but it may also just be kind of a check the box issue um, that if you're good enough on it. And Trump will say, yeah, you know, critical race therapy is the worst. These people are the worst. And that, that might be enough for some people, because if you look at the polling and now, I think you could cut this multiple ways of on. So and again, this was just on on social issues. And to an extent, I'm not sure that I would consider guns a social issue, but Manhattan did for the, the sake of this. And uh, guns uh, was the, the the most salient issue out of guns, abortion, basically gender issues and, you know, kind of critical race theory, racial issues. Uh, what was the was the most salient by a decent chunk in all those places, followed by abortion. The thing that I would say, though, to Manhattan, though, is I don't know for a lot of people or for a lot of voters, conservatives, but they're really separating out sort of gender ideology opposed from like sort of race or identity ideology. And if you start aggregating those things, um, you know, to some sort of kind of identitarian wokeism, uh, it's it's a you know it, it's a close number two in some of those states to Second Amendment. It's more salient, in fact, on those issues because you know I. I presume that you know the folks that think abortion is a top issue probably the trickle down around sort of gender and all those kind of things kind of get sucked up into that. So I think the field is going to have to figure out how to reckon with this. It is something where voters seem it seems to be they have their mind made up, I think, to a large extent. But how candidates contend with it, I, I think that will I think to your point, Ben, I think the Trump approach is probably going to be insufficient. And the DeSantis approach may be too much or it may be too untargeted. Yeah. And I think, I guess, the sort of the last point. Just just to respond to your point directly. Sorry. No, go ahead. Finish. The the last point is, and I think that this gets at the sort of the genius of the Yunkin race in 21. I I think for the most part, I think this is to some maybe less true on the left, but I think for most normal Americans, whatever political stripe, 
they don't want to be sort of put upon or dictated to or told how to live their lives. So whichever side is being seen as quote unquote on offense uh, that is trying to disrupt the status quo, I think that there is sort of a small C conservative recoiling from that. And I think in as much as candidates can frame the, I'm going to be the guy that stops that as opposed to I'm going to be the guy that, you know, makes them say Merry Christmas again. Uh, I, I think that the the first, which I think Youngkin did very well of, you know, th- say this far and no farther, uh, goes a lot farther than like, oh, we're going to have school prayer and schools mandated if you want federal funding. I don't think anyone is suggesting <laughs> that, but it's sort of like the. Well, no, uh, actually, I got a press release today from Matt Gates about the is National Prayer in Schools Act. I haven't looked at it personally because uh, I know uh, Matt Gates's legislation is mostly written in crayon. But uh, the just to respond to your point directly, uh, it was interesting in this uh, you know poll again, uh, Iowa, uh, you know, on longstanding social issues like abortion and gun rights, fifty one percent describe somewhat conservative, or I mean, uh, sorry, very conservative on. Economic and fiscal issues like taxes and government spending, 52% uh, very conservative, essentially the same number. And, you know, as opposed to the 64% on those newer culture war issues, virtually the same numbers in South Carolina, 51 and 54, respectively. So I I think what I'm kind of saying to you is, is I think that what you have to do is kind of tap into enough of those older battles while emphasizing the newer battles, but at the same time talking more about other things, meaning like that, those need to be elements of what you're doing, uh, but not the entirety of. And that to me was the key to Yunkin's success. And again, you know, we don't want to become overly focused on him just because, you know, I realize he's a pipe dream, you know, as a candidate, you know, the filing deadline is basically a month from now in South Carolina, which means that like the idea that he's going to sort of swing in and run is just, I just personally think it's nuts, but you know, we'll see, but it's one of these things where the, the, the emphasis, I think that you're talking about here really matters, meaning you can check the box on some of these things with, with demonstrative, demonstrative and strong language. But if you're viewed as being someone who's on offense, as opposed to defending you know, tradition or the status quo, then that I think makes your, makes your situation to be that much more difficult. Totally. And I would just say, you know, just very briefly, like, you know, John, it's what you, what you've said, and there's a great national affairs um, essay. I've just been made aware of it. it. It's a little bit old now, but about Trump and emotive politics. And it's what John and all, and other people have, have identified as Trump says the thing. So to your point, and that's what they care about, that Trump just says the thing. So, Ben, to your point that there are other candidates that are much to his right on these things, I mean, I think it's enough for a lot of voters, and it it jibes with what you just said about how it's an important issue, but not the important issue for these voters. You know, the voter knows that Trump is not politically correct, and the voter knows that Trump is going to say, you know, the common sense, you know, take on a lot of these sort of identity issues and that he's not going to be afraid to use the right adjectives or the right hyphens. Uh, He's not going to be afraid of using the wrong adjectives or the wrong hyphens. And that's kind of enough. I don't, I haven't seen evidence and certainly the DeSantis, Ron DeSantis hasn't seen evidence that, 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 you know, action on these things in, in, in the form of the stuff that DeSantis has done in Florida is going to prevail upon these, you know, a, a, a critical mass of these voters you know, beyond like any more than just, again, 
Trump being willing to kind of say on PC things. And so the whole idea of like, you know, where woke goes to die, I think, I think the last few weeks have been a, have been, you know, the verdict that that has failed as an approach to his presidential campaign. And it needs to be where inflation goes to die, right? It needs to be where, you know, uh, higher taxes go to die. Um, you know, it needs to be those, um, you know, and where amnesty goes to die, you know, it needs to be those big words on the word cloud. So that brings us, you, you brought up uh, Ron DeSantis a couple of times. Uh, that brings us to, uh, you know, his situation. He uh, switches campaign managers. He retains the services of his uh, original uh, campaign manager uh, and, uh, you know, who guided his uh, gubernatorial campaign, but brings on his chief of staff, basically, who hasn't done a lot of campaigns uh, or or anything really approaching that kind of experience to take things over. You know, in the wake of what has been obviously a troublesome couple of months for him, uh, the the DeSantis campaign is is in an interesting position now because they've changed their strategy very clearly. They went from doing basically conservative media, conservative podcasts, conservative uh, you know conversation and the like. Uh, by the way, he's going to sit down, I guess, with the ruthless guys when he uh, goes to the Iowa State Fair. Um, he's also you know participating obviously in the Kim Reynolds event there again. It does seem like. You know, given Trump's repeated attacks on Kim Reynolds uh, and her repeated, uh, uh, you know, showings with DeSantis, it seems very unlikely that she's going to endorse uh, anybody else if she endorses uh, at all. Uh, but DeSantis is in this, you know, weird situation. You know, he's solidly in number two in a lot of these places, but his numbers have dipped. Uh, he's got a lot of money, but it's lodged in a super PAC and not in his own campaign. He's just changed campaign managers. Uh, and uh, this new strategy where he's kind of going on CNN, talking to Jake Tapper, uh, you know, he's talking to NBC where they're coming after him on a, on abortion in a way that led to a, a weirdly edited question uh, or a weirdly edited answer, I should say, from him. Uh, that uh, they then released the full video uh, for, and it made the NBC reporter look uh, fairly stupid if you knew anything about the facts in question. Uh, and, uh, you know, I just think he's kind of in this weird period where he's kind of waiting for Trump. He's waiting for the confrontational moment that he and his people anticipate happening on that stage in Milwaukee. And I don't think they really know what to do with themselves until then. Um let me know what you th what do you think about the DeSantis campaign at this point? Uh, what's your perspective on it? I think that's exactly right. And it's like it's almost like, I don't know, World War II in 1940 or 1941. It's like the it's like the Battle of Britain phase where, you know, people are kind of hoping that Lend-Lease will, you know, last long enough. And Stalin's hoping that enough, you know, Sherman tanks and, uh, you know, cotton and wool and and grain from the united states makes it to archangel you know the ports in the north to you know sus sustain him through the winter and everyone's kind of waiting for the you know the, the the next decisive point or open that second front and desantis absolutely needs a second front he needs a direct confrontation with trump the debates the debate stage will change things i also i also know a lot of people who I respect, I think they're wrong on this, but a lot of people who I respect think that January 6th and the indictments, even even the bad ones, even the ones we think are kind of flawed, um, whether it's the New York indictment or the January 6th indictment on matters of law, we've been over many times that we don't think as a moral 
matter. It's, it's, it's necessarily flawed, but it's a matter of law. You know, a lot of people I respect think that those will weigh on Trump, that we haven't seen their effect yet, that when these things start going to trial and when when January 6th is is relitigated in public in a more prominent way than it was even during the hearings, that this will bear down on on his voters and that when people actually get inside the booth, they'll think twice about pulling the lever. I just don't agree with them. I I mean, I hope they're right. I don't think that's any secret. Um, I hope they're right, but I just don't see it. I think what we see is what we get. And that applies to, to DeSantis too. I mean, it's never good to fire your campaign manager. You, you pointed out the problem with this sort of post, you know, McCain Feingold world where he's got a ton of money, but it's a lot of it's out of his direct control. And I just don't see what changes for him. Like John said, it, it would have to be something extrinsic, uh, an act of God. Further to that, I was kind of curious because I think we spoke about maybe last week the potential for a Ron DeSantis, Gavin Newsom debate, which again could be the one thing to maybe get a little bit of adrenaline into the the heart of the DeSantis campaign. Uh, and again, what I'm about to read is from uh, one of you know, Gavin Newsom's spokesmen. So take it for what it is. Uh, it's in a you know been reported by NBC News, but uh, the DeSantis. I guess, rejected or proposed different terms than the ones that I thought were <laughs> pretty DeSantis favorable that Newsom offered. But, uh, quote, DeSantis's counterproposal is littered with crutches to hide his insecurity and ineptitude, swapping opening statements with a hype video, cutting down the time he needs to be on stage, adding cheat notes in a cheering section, the spokesman said. Ron should be able to stand on his own two feet. It's no wonder Trump is kicking his ass, unquote. It's kind of, I mean, it's it's kind of amazing. You've had like the Newsom and Trump teams kind of almost harmonizing as to kind of what the message is. Yeah. Well, they both want Tr- Donald Trump to be the nominee. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And that's sure, a great but, statement. I just have to say. That's a great statement. But, but, <laughs> but then like, you, you know, you, you pour, go down pour, and pour, pour out some California Chardonnay for that one. <laughs> yeah. But then you go yeah. down and you're like, ah, oh, you know, this, this has to be misconstrued. But then. Uh, you know, the San- I mean, sure, they have some different dates, but, you know, the Newsom wanted no live audience, which does not seem to be fair or unfair to anyone. But DeSantis wants a live audience with a 50-50 split. Uh, DeSantis does not want opening remarks. Newsom does. Uh, DeSantis uh, wants a- each of them to submit a two-minute long video that must be approved by Fox News before it's played at the top of the debate. Uh, I mean, if that's the stuff that's keeping you from going on stage in a place that's going to give you national exposure. Can I give you, Republican... can I give you, can I give you a contrast to this? Sure. You know, people forget there, there's a, there's a revisionist history that sort of says that it was obvious that Ronald Reagan was always going to be the nominee. Um, a big reason that he became the nominee, uh, you know, was because of that Panama Canal debate uh, that you, that you had, that was so, you know, such a, a key moment in history and was purposefully almost, you know, in, in a, in a kayfabe way engineered by William F. Buckley. Uh, if you get into the nitty gritty of it. Uh, but the point was to sort of be, be able to stand on your own two feet uh, and demonstrate to the American people. You're not a lightweight. You're not a California actor anymore. You're not someone who can't defend, uh, you know, America, uh, in uh, you know in a you know in a a, a situation where uh, you're going to have to deal with uh, significant debaters uh, and i you know from my perspective 
I'd be happy, you know, if if I was Ron at this point to take anything that would put me on air for you know an hour uh, debating Gavin Newsom uh, or debating really, you know, uh, anybody, uh, you know, at s- sort of that level of success. If it was Gretchen Whitmer, I'd do the same thing. Yep. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, he exactly- can't. He can't. He can't not show up at that debate. He he can't have this debate fall through. It's 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 crazy to say something like this is like make or break, but it, it just it just confirms well, too many suspicions. Well, but especially you know, if, if especially if you think of it as if you do a good job, and then you, like meaning like if you have confidence in, your, in yourself that you're going to do a good job and you're going to win that debate, then the pressure beca- shifts to Trump to show up to the debate in Milwaukee, meaning like, or, or, you know, even, even debates further than that, just the idea that like Trump can ignore this guy. It's like, you know, what, what you actually want, what you really want, I think is for this to be something that leapfrogs you into the nation's mindset as, uh, and into the Republican voters mindset as I would love to see that guy debating senile Joe Biden. Um, and, totally. Yeah, and, totally. and if, if, if you can't have a, you don't need a crowd to do that. <laughs> no, look, and, and look, I don't, I don't blame him. I don't blame him for trying to get the terms as fair. I mean, it's a little bit of a bad look. I, I guess. looks I like it's a crutch, right? But I don't blame him for trying to get the terms, the most favorable terms, but he has to now cave. If it, he, ha- he, he is in the, you know, Newsom is in the driver's seat because DeSantis absolutely needs this debate more than Newsom does. For Newsom, it's a nice to have thing that sets you up for acts of God or 28. You know, DeSantis absolutely needs the cycle. He needs the victory. And also it's worth noting that like hard right, center right, center center, center left, everybody in the political media wants this to happen and thinks it's a good idea and thinks it's not just red meat good idea, but that it's a substantively important thing. It doesn't involve the words Donald Trump. I mean, the debate will inevitably, but it's a thing where two guys who are not 176 years old, who are prominent national political figures are going to debate the issues that are facing the country. I mean, potentially it, 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 it could be that. So, you know, that absolutely DeSantis needs this and, you know, he's got to show up. I, I, I blame DeSantis on this for a lack of audacity. And again, the stakes are different for him for, for the reasons I think you just outlined well, that Gavin Newsom is not trying to get on the ballot. Well, he's not openly trying to get on the ballot this cycle. Uh, you know, he's he's trying to set the stage for the future. But I mean, could you can you imagine imagine for you what for if you will, it, it look, if, if Ron DeSantis wants to do something audacious, say, you know what, Gretchen Whitmer, we will go on with Joy Reid on MSNBC in battleground democratic states. Uh, under the same terms as Newsom, because that's that's what Newsom Newsom offered. This debate could be in Georgia or North Carolina or Nevada. Uh, that that's a fair thing. With a with Sean Hannity is the moderator. The new the Sanders at this point needs to be a I will fight anybody anywhere anytime perspective. Because when you set yourself up as that guy, the tough guy, the the guy that you know well, we're woke goes to die. But you know you're getting you're getting goaded and then you're quibbling over details with. A guy who is cut you seemingly a pretty fair deal. Uh, NBC's got the the letter or the memo that the, the Newsom team sent to Sean Hannity, and it's uh, it is their their very generous terms that Newsom offered. I think what people wanted to see, what I wanted to see from DeSantis, and, and look, there is a lot to like about Ron DeSantis. Until the last few months, 
you know, he was probably my guy far and away out of this field, but I want a guy that is, that's willing. We need somebody that's willing to make the affirmative case, not just that progressives suck or Democrats suck because that's all that either party does right now. Vote for me because I'm not the other guy. It's tired. And it's, it's leading to, I think, a sort of a death spiral in American society that we may never pull our way back out of. And I'm sorry to get kind of meta on this, but somebody who is willing to try to persuade or even somebody who's willing to, to go into a room and, you know, realize there's no audience for this, but everyone's going to hate me. Do what Christie did with the, what was it, the Faith and Family Forum. You're going to go into a place and no one there is going to like you. And you know what? I've got something to say that they need to hear and they can boo and they can catcall. To me, that's that's a lot yeah. more brave than, you know, leather jackets and slogans and, and that kind of stuff. If you want to be a fighter, go fight. Mm. Yeah, uh, it's Hannibal Burris. Why are you booing? I'm right. <laughs> Why are you booing? I'm right. Yes. OK, well, let's close out on this, uh, gentlemen. Um uh, it, with the debate field set, um, and it does look like uh, Mike Pence has, by the skin of his teeth, uh, you know, uh, pulled it out and will be able to make at least his first debate. Though, keep in mind, there's going to be a second debate rather quickly following on it, um, where he will have to significantly increase his donor numbers, uh, and uh, and it may be that he falls off the stage. Um, you know, you've got you've got a solid. Uh, group of folks there. I think the one surprise, obviously, is is Doug Burgum. Um, but there's another person who I think you know we we don't talk about him that much, but we really ought to, and that's Vivek Ramaswamy, the uh, the uh, Ohio based uh, quote unquote biotech investor um, who uh, is now really solidly positioned himself as basically fourth. In each of the first three states, I mean, you can look at the different averages in the different polls, but pretty consistently coming in at fourth, uh, you know, a hair behind uh, Tim Scott, uh, you know, in in most situations. But, you know, it's really sort of he, he's ahead, uh, uh, needless to say, of Pence, uh, of Nikki Haley, of uh, Doug Burgum. Uh, and it's one of these situations that I think is is surprising to a lot of people, given that his only real role before this was as an author and kind of Fox News personality, but also I would say someone who who goes basically on every form of media. There's going to be more interest, I think, in looking at uh, who he is, his positions in the past, reflecting on how much they are in conflict with his positions now. Uh, personally, I think having uh, interviewed him a couple of times, I thought he was an interesting writer who wrote interesting books. Um, but the idea that this guy at 37 uh, has sort of uh, figured everything out when it comes to politics um, is belied by the lack of seriousness that I hear from him every time he's asked a serious question. Um, he was asked one this past week about what he would have done on January 6th. Um, if he was in Mike Pence's position, he said it never would have gotten to that point. I would have dealt with it beforehand, which is not an answer. Um, and you know, when it, when it comes to sort of the, the, dis, uh, the differences between what he wrote in his books and what he's saying now, uh, it's just massive. I mean, he, he basically comes across as being kind of a moderate Republican type, uh, who probably had designs on running for Senate, uh, or something like that from Ohio, as opposed to what he's doing now, which is basically tag teaming along with Donald Trump in in every uh, virtually every respect. Um, so with all that said, 
uh, I, I'm just curious, is there, what is your attitude towards him as a candidate? And are we at risk of seeing someone, you know, rise up from a Republican field that lacks a lot of really good communicators, uh, clearly, uh, just by dint of having their, their, you know, finger on the zeitgeist of what people want to hear, uh, who are tuned in yeah. at this moment. Yeah, I think, and I think, you know, oh, sorry, so, what, what, sorry to interrupt Dan, but just to be clear, we're talking about nine 11 truther, Vivek Ramaswamy, right? <laughs> sure yeah, we're talking about well, a different one. Well, he's just I saying mean, the truther to last us, week. John. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if he feels like he needs to, he needs to switch positions on that next week. You know, he um, he undoubtedly will, and that you know that's part of the problem. Look, there, there's a tradition, a long tradition, certainly the last thirty years, and I'm sure it goes back well before that. There's a tradition in primary fields of branding, personal branding candidates and candidacies. I mean, you could even argue somebody like Steve Forbes, right, was was doing that. You certainly you can argue that somebody like Herman Cain or Ben Carson was doing that you know that there's a they're kind of brand building exercises you know if you want to argue that they're they're operating in good faith you know can i interrupt I, i'm going to disagree with you about steve uh steve well fair, fair enough no I no, mean, no no look, no no let he, me let me let me disagree with you in a way that i think actually applies to this directly i thought vivek was going to be by the way he insists you get his name correctly it's, it's vivek it's not vivek um i thought vivek was going to be a steve forbes candidate Meaning, I'm not running to actually become president. I mean, maybe if I have, if something weird happens and I end up, you know, in the nomination, you know, I can afford to, you know, whatever, do what I can to become president. But I'm running because I have a set of issues that I think are really important that I want everyone yeah, to be exactly. talking about and responding to. Meaning, in his case, yeah. uh, DEI, ESG stuff everything related to kind of the portfolio from his books in the same way that with Steve, it was the flat tax. But from my perspective, that hasn't turned out to be the campaign that he's running or the approach that he's had. No, and that's what I'm saying. Look, the good faith version of that is somebody who has a pet issue or a couple pet issues. The rent is too damn high, whatever it is. But what we've seen, so there's been this history of sort of of sort of branding exercise candidates. And like I said, there's a good faith and a bad faith version of that or a selfish and a selfless version of that or an issue focused versus a me focused version of that. But, you know, to borrow a phrase from, you know, a, a different faction of the of the political world than the one I come from, you know, Ramaswamy needs to know what time it is. And it's not time for a personal branding campaign. I mean, if you actually care about the future of the country, if you actually care about the victor in this election, you know, you want you have to understand that, you know, it's it, it, it's not the year to be, especially as a 37 year old, to be running a branding exercise campaign that's going to have all sorts of knock on effects. Um, you know, he's not going to win, but he has the potential to sh really shape the outcome. Uh, as amazing as it is to say, and this just ain't the time to do it. It's a very serious election. The two top choices are both, again, 176 years old. And, you know, it's it's a time to sort of get behind, you know, a serious candidate, not to confuse the matter and perpetuate the same sort of, again, you know, tragedy of the commons or coordination problem that has led to so many problems in the recent past in, in American elections. I guess my take, and it's it's too early to say how all this is going to shake out with him, but it feels a little bit like a third party candidate in a 
like in a gubernatorial election of a guy that's polling higher now than he will when when voters go to the ballot box. And I I admit that this is you know just sort of speculatory and I can be completely off base here. But if you look at the matrix of issues that uh, you know he sort of he made his name around. And again, I I, I thought he was a very articulate uh, person on those issues and you know was was putting issues to the fore and the the you know in the vessel of you know a younger entrepreneur right not just some corporate ceo that's trying to do their thing to make sure that the, the public relations for the firm are good but if you if you really care if you're one of the guys that cares about those issues why aren't you voting for Ron DeSantis the guy who has a path a narrowing path but has a path to be the nominee i guess i'm kind of curious who the Ramaswamy voter is it, because you know, because it seems like that those guys are either going to they're going to end up with Trump or DeSantis at some point. And if you're voting for Ramaswamy and not Trump and DeSantis, why? I, I'm I'm legitimately curious as to, to who those who those people are and why Trump or DeSantis, because the issue matrix is DeSantis's. Obviously, he speaks with you know great affinity for for President Trump. Uh, Ramaswamy does. So it just it doesn't make a ton of sense to me. It doesn't. I, I, the whole the whole thing doesn't make a ton of sense to me, but uh, you know I also don't think that you know presidential primary is a, a place to do a, a branding exercise that's personality based as much as you know what Forbes did on on taxes or others have done on you know social issues those kind of things. Um, you know I guess the the best the best and highest example I know is, is a you know one of your favorites uh, Ben is the, the Buchanan ninety two race, but um, yeah Ramaswamy is like a cipher for me and. Look, I'm holding out for my my boy Bergam, still uh, still <laughs> slowly but surely getting some momentum. And let let me say, I, 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 rocking I that wonder, flow, doubling from one to two percent. <laughs> that that it's presidential hair. Um, <laughs> but here here's the thing that I think is kind of to me, and I know that, that we've texted a little bit about this. Is to me, Bergam kind of is in this race, kind of like the Western version of Glenn Youngkin. Uh, and again, this is from what you know. What you know, you know, we've picked up in the press recently. But a guy that's got that sort of up from his bootstrap story, very successful entrepreneur. Um, I think in some ways, Bergam's background in business is almost more relevant to the time of guy who's a tech guy uh, that sold his company for a ton of money to Microsoft. Who end up the current CEO of Microsoft used to work for Doug Bergam when Bergam was running one of the business units at Microsoft after the acquisition. But a guy that's solidly conservative who's you know, early 60s, so he's been around, but is not a million years old, who's grown up in the tech world, uh, whose inclinations, I mean, I think in some ways he's actually, same problem as Youngkin, he's just too normal uh, for, and I, I admit to a love of the really normal, you know, mid, upper Midwestern governor, the Mitch Daniels, the Tim Pawlenty, obviously Doug Burgum now is the the version of that for me this cycle, Scott Walker. Um, but... I think a guy like that on that stage, especially if it becomes, you know, just a just a shit show with people yelling at each other, and it's completely possible that it could. Does he kind of is he able to just be like, I'm the normal guy, and again, nothing's going to win, but you could kind of see a guy like that picks. And I think Tim Scott has got some of that same room to grow in it of a guy that's just going to say normal stuff that people generally kind of believe in. And the last thing, and it's sort of a stream of conscious. I know Pence is going to have trouble with fundraising or has had trouble with fundraising. The interesting thing is I, I kind of wonder, and I'm curious what you guys think, if you could end up, depending on how Pence handles this debate 
And if he goes both barrels at, at Donald Trump in, in a Pence style, not in a Christie style, is it possible that you could have progressives that do a dollar to Mike Pence just so he can continue to be on the stage and saying those things in the next debate? I, I don't I don't see that. But, you know, it, you know, it it's going to be. You're right. I don't I don't know how those debates are, are going to go. And it's certainly going to shake up a lot of our the stuff we're talking about, you know, and we're going to have a whole new set of issues and and outcomes to talk about. But I don't I don't know if, if progressives can pull the, you know, you know, press the Venmo button for Mike Pence. That might be a bridge too far. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to agree with Dan. Uh, you know, I think this is probably Pence's one shot, uh, but he should take it. I mean, he should just sort of I mean, I think he should demand the time, you know, detail what he said. He's, you know, been uh, more you know, for him. He's been confrontational, uh, you know, on the trail in Iowa and and the like, uh, you know, saying, you know, with all due respect, ma'am, uh, that would be unconstitutional. That is his equivalent of saying "f you." Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think that you know we're gonna. By we're the gonna way, can see... I just can I yeah. can I just can I just say the I, I it shouldn't go unremarked upon that we went from like a month and a half ago saying Doug who to now John saying, did you know that the current CEO of Microsoft used to work for Bergam, you know, like 20 years ago, we're going to, we're going to get into Bergam minutiae. I mean, it's just amazing how far he's going. Look, but, my, you know, my prediction for, for, for Bergam is he probably ends up, you know, being, you know, someone who, uh, who, who tops out at, at, you know, fourth, ideally, uh, if, you know, in, if everything falls his way in this process, but we'll see. Um, you know, I've I've been wrong before. I will be wrong again. Uh, but you know, that's that's part of that's part of this business. So, this has been Thunderdome. I want to thank all of you for listening. Uh, on behalf of Dan, John, and myself, uh, I hope that you'll go to thespectator.com, check out uh, all of our newsletters there, our podcasts, uh, and subscribe to the magazine as well. Uh, I have a, uh, a an article in the forthcoming issue that I hope that you'll. Uh, all read about the uh, attacks from Sheldon Whitehouse on the Supreme Court um, that I think uh, will be of interest. Uh, and uh, we'll be back next week to talk more about this uh, crazy election. And it'll be, uh, you know, one of the last episodes right before we get into the debate scenarios, which are, of course, uh, you know, on the 23rd uh, in August, uh, we we actually can finally crack this thing open uh, and and stop speculating about what's going to happen when all these crazy people are on stage together. Thanks for listening. I'm Ben Dominich. We will be back with more next week.